Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. Before we get started this week, just a quick heads up that if you're building in Web3, the next class of the Techstars Web3 Accelerator takes place in spring 2024, and applications are open now. As Web3 is global and borderless, so is Techstars Web3. Although most of the Accelerator content is delivered virtually, the class meets up in person for a week at a time at the beginning, middle, and end of the 13-week program in different cities around the world. Jump on over to techstars.com slash accelerators slash web3 to apply. On the show this week, we've got Ari Yu. Hi, my name is Ari Yu, and I am the co-chair of the U.S. Blockchain Coalition. Ari Yu is a 23-plus-year emerging technology industry veteran, serial founder, and strategic operator with expertise in scaling businesses from zero to one, with a consistent track record building high-performance teams. She is currently the executive director and co-founder of the U.S. Blockchain Coalition and founding chair of the Cascadia Blockchain Council. Yu also works in venture capital as she serves as the managing director of Yellow Umbrella Ventures and venture partner with Startup Haven Fund. She also regularly serves as an educator, as adjunct professor and instructor for various academic institutions like the Saudi Digital Academy, Coding Dojo, Portland State University, and the University of Washington Tacoma Milgard School of Business. An innovator, public speaker, and writer, she has been widely published in national media outlets including Forbes, CNN Money, U.S. News & World Report, GeekWire, and more. Over the years, you has worked with both investors and developers across four continents to launch both SaaS and consumer products. In this episode, Ari shares her story on her path into crypto and blockchain from the roots of her early corporate career into becoming a startup founder, investor, and executive director and co-founder of the U.S. Blockchain Coalition. Ari also sheds some light on the paradox that is the U.S. attitude towards crypto, with the overwhelming majority of global venture capital investment in crypto companies coming from the same country whose innovators have to withstand such a toxic regulatory view towards crypto. We then round things out with Ari's view on investing in Web3 founders and their startups and some of the ups and downs that go along with this. All right here on Money Never Sleeps. Do you know that even though we were introduced by Marion Saboni from Techstars, that I had a quick look at your LinkedIn profile and saw Mike Wise from the Boston Blockchain uh, yeah, Association. Yeah, he gets out around a lot. He's very out there. Yeah. He does. He does. And big shout out to Mike. And he is a mentor for my Techstars oh, Web3 program. Good. So what Mike Wise said is that Aries' superpower is convening people around a mission. <laughs> yeah. So wonderful. But listen, just to get us started, Ari, you have such a varied and diverse background with all of the different things that you've worked on through the years. And can you navigate us through your path to today from the initial career that you built with Microsoft and Hitachi and KPMG through your startup founder experience and then on to blockchain and venture investing? And just, just take us through that and give us a look inside. Yeah, yeah? It's, a, it's been a really good journey and I've been the recipient and beneficiary of a lot of good people taking me under their wings throughout my career. I would say I would start on early on in my life, let's say like elementary school, middle school, high school, college. I actually thought I was going to be a musician growing up. But then I discovered there was a whole world out there that I had never been exposed to outside of my lonesome piano playing. 
And so it's a <laughs> kind of a crazy path. I got to Microsoft because I really enjoyed bringing people together. When I moved to Seattle, it was lonesome. <laughs> it was really hard to make friends. And there is this thing called the Seattle Freeze. And so I started this thing called Socially Conscious Bar Nights. And it started with, you know, two people, four people coming monthly. And after about five years, I had about 400 people coming to my events. And so I learned the art of community building and rallying people and building this momentum and energy. And in that, Microsoft, I started working with the uh, marketing group and the sales group, doing these award programs and events for their top salespeople. And this may sound like very un-PC and it probably wouldn't fly these days in 2023, but back in you know 20, 2002, the general manager that I worked under came to me and he's like, hey, you're Asian. You can do math. I need an analyst. Do you want to be an analyst? Okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> How hard could that be? <laughs> right? Why not? <laughs> well. Wow. Yeah, no, you couldn't get away with no. that anymore, could you? I'm not sure if you should have got away with that back then or he should have got away no. with it back then. I mean, I had no business being an analyst in finance at Microsoft. I didn't know anything about reports okay. or business intelligence or sales numbers or executive reporting. But here I was running reports for salespeople worldwide. I learned how to do Excel and pivot tables and Oracle cubes and things like that. It was the worst and hardest job of my entire life. There's nothing that's been harder. Worked my tail off, of course, but along the way, Microsoft decided that they were going to make this all business intelligence and build data warehouses. So we weren't going to be doing this off Access and Excel anymore globally. And so they hired in a consulting firm and the consulting firm came in. They're like, oh, hey, Ari, do you know how to do you know SQL? I was like, no. <laughs> so they're like, do you want to learn? Yeah. And Microsoft had decided that, you know, all the finance guys were too old and too busy to do this. So they sent the young, you know, the 22, 23 year old to go work with the mm -hmm. IT people. And that actually began my career that I've led to this day. I helped work with the consulting team. I learned SQL. I learned about databases and OLAP cubes. And then they tried to hire me out and bring me into their consulting firm. Well, when I was going to do that, I was like, oh, I might as well interview a handful of others. I ended up at Hitachi Consulting, and that was probably the best place I could yep. have ever landed at because it was post Enron, post Anderson Consulting, and they had all the toolkits and onboarding and training to make anybody into like an amazing consultant. I spent about a year there, and then I got recruited out to join KPMG, was the second person brought in. And worked under a partner named Mark Diamond. And he was like, hey, I've heard about Shulsuke Consulting Bar Nights and that you can bring people together. I think you can help us grow this practice. And then basically every job after that was, hey, I think you can help grow this practice. And so I joined Logic 2020 after that, helped them grow their practice practices. And then kind of got bored. I thought, okay, I know how to grow practices. I know how to grow teams. I understand this business intelligence thing. I understand marketing. I mean, I've done my tour of all the different businesses. And so I said, let me go and apply it. And so I showed up to a startup weekend, pitched an idea, just a random idea that had been mulling around for a while, came out first place. And I was like, oh, maybe that's a, maybe this is a thing. Maybe my, this is my next step. So I quit my job and did the accelerator thing. Went out of 500 startups in San Francisco. I was the first person to raise eight months pregnant. <laughs> it can be done. Um, wow. out of San Francisco and then raised my seed. And then around that time, my husband and I started angel investing. And so, you know, I was going through the accelerators and I was trying to make mental bets about, you know, what makes a good startup or what doesn't make a good, good startup. And, you know, throughout the accelerator. While you're going yeah, through the accelerator, yeah, I'd, I'd make bets. while you're going through the accelerator, you're thinking about, all right, 
what is it that might make other startups good right. investments? Right, exactly. And so, and I've been through two accelerators formally. And so through each one, I was thinking and making bets. And I, I found that I was actually pretty good, especially when I had the inside track of these founders and what they were up to. And and I came up with, with my takeaways, which was, you know, they better be hustling and working hard. This is not a party. This is not about your ego or going to cool parties and getting access to free booze and networking events. This is actually about like getting stuff done and going to the ends of the earth to make sure you do it and the diligence and persistence. And, and so that's what I look for when I invest these days. And then, you know, one of the investments that my husband and I did was a Bitcoin one. My husband became obsessed with Bitcoin in 2014. I said, yeah, kind of too early. You know, Silk Road has just happened. Mount Gox. We're a little too early. I don't think this is going to be a thing. And 2016 is when we actually started investing in crypto related startups. He broke me down. <laughs> Were you familiar with it? Would you personally had you dug in back in 2014 and gone through white papers and oh, tried to this get is your head where around? I really it? kick myself because I have an early, I have a friend who brought me in like early onto Twitter and Facebook and all these different platforms as an early user, and he was all about Bitcoin back then. And I was like, nah, not too early. He was like, you should just buy like a hundred bucks. I was like, nah, I'm just I don't have time. And then yeah. you know, then my husband got obsessed with it. And I was like, nah, too early, too early. And then, you know, getting into it 2016, formally myself going, oh, <laughs> darn, <laughs> now looking back. Yeah. But, you know, say la vie, you get what, you, you know, what you put into it. And the kind of is a lesson in just everyday life. Slow down, <laughs> take the five minutes to read the email versus like saying, I'll get back to it later and never getting back to it. That type of diligence. And then, yeah, one of the startups brought me in as their Sheryl Sandberg and COO president, and I helped them do their first seed raise. They were young, 22, 23-year-olds. And then they said, hey, we want to do an ICO. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. I'm totally in. And we were one of the last ICOs to crack through the U.S. world in 2017, got the tour of the world. And I came away with, we don't really need actually more dApps and actually protocols and builders right now. We actually need a lot more people doing the translation, the advocacy, the education, the mm. policies, the guidance, the standards, like that is what actually needs more work today than builders right now, because it's going to be a long time before the world kind of snaps into place around this technology. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's been one of my observations and what we talk to everyone in the Techstars cohorts about is that, listen, this is a tiny market, <laughs> you know. And that if you just have people in crypto selling to other people in crypto or Web3 selling to other people in Web3, that you're not going to get no. very far. And that we just got to bring a lot more people into this and and it changed the whole mindset. And it's not necessarily changed the mindset, just educating mm -hmm. people and opening up their eyes to, to what's been going on with all this. On that note, Ari, I've been looking at mm -hmm. the U.S., and having been gone now for 23 years from the U.S., and I feel like each passing year, my understanding of the U.S. mentality around a bunch of different things. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in is that when you and I first chatted last week, I had just finished reading Masari's State of Crypto Fundraising for quarter three of this year, for quarter three of 2023, and that the last graph in the report was quite telling because it shows the huge over-concentration of active VC investment in crypto as originating from the US. It was 53% for Q3. And just that graph, and we'll stick it into the show notes, is just visually just jaw-dropping, obvious 
it's all coming from the U.S., all the investment in crypto. But the market rhetoric in the U.S. right now, especially the regulatory side, has just been so toxic towards crypto of late. And again, as an outsider, this feels like a real paradox in that it's where all the majority of the crypto investment is coming from. However, it's where the vast majority of the toxic rhetoric towards crypto is coming from. What do you think is at the source of this paradox? I think it's actually a blessing in disguise, despite what people think. There are so many things that are just not ready for true mass adoption and rollout. And so if people are afraid of it or they're wary of it or intimidated by it, I think if you're not if you're really not ready to roll up your sleeves and do your own research and get really into the weeds and go down all the various rat holes that are involved in being in the space, it's actually better that you stay out of it and stay safe and not be one of the uh, victims of all the things that can go wrong in this space because uh, we really are early. In terms of the U.S., like when I talk to policymakers and people in the government relations world, uh, they say like the U.S. is the place where you go to innovate and the EU is like where you go and get regulated, right? Like you look at the example of data privacy and GDPR that rolled out. And then, you know, in the U.S., we had the CCPA and the CPRA. Like, okay, that makes sense. And then recently we had Mika. All right. You know, I can kind of buy that. We have at least two good data points around that. And then when you look at just overall U.S. dominance as a world plower, it really should stay that way. We should continue to at least have at least 53% or more of the crypto investing and innovation and building be in the United States. I would hope and keep want to keep that way, which is why I do what I do. And then if you look at other reports, like we just reproduced, we being the United States Blockchain Coalition, we just produced the State of Web3 report. You look at that, you look at the government federal funding over time since 2007 till today. It's literally increased year over year. Government is investing more and more despite what the government is saying. You look at the enterprises, they've been generally quiet. And I've been knocking on doors left and right, trying to get them to share their use cases or their theories or hypotheses. They've been quiet, but they've been investing more and more and more and more enterprises have been onboarded. And of course, you know, people are still building. We have lots of builders that are continually believing this through thick and thin, through the longest crypto winter of history. People are still building. And so I think it's noise from those that know that yeah. we are not ready for a full on mass adoption. It's noise for people that maybe haven't got in yet or are looking for the right time for various things I need to I, I don't know the exact details but I think it's it's a good thing and it's also knowingly being supported by the media and our government and folks around for the right time maybe a better time yeah because I will commonly get asked about this as well is that it, my mom and dad will ask me they're like should I go into crypto and I'm like no it's not for you <laughs> don't mm -hmm. right and but then also just folks that say, hey, what's going on out there? What is this all about? We hear all these stories I'm like, all right, let's break it down. So when you paint that picture for people who are not informed about what's going on in crypto, they're like, oh, OK. And then you move on. Right. It's like you take these stories of these toxic stories away mm -hmm. from all of it. Right. You mentioned the United States Blockchain Coalition. Can you talk a bit about the mission there, Ari? Yeah, totally. The U.S. Blockchain Coalition, we're basically a collection of states across the United States. And there's a quote by Justice Brandeis that kind of inspires and leads us all. It's kind of our like North Star. 
which is the states are the best laboratories for democracy. Instead of fighting mm-hmm. the fight in D.C. and all the pomp and circumstance around that, um, states are much more agile and much more quick and can move at a pace that the, the federal government, as by design, uh, with its high friction processes and all that, can move. And uh, if you look at you know the current state of affairs of the U.S. regulatory regime, you know people are like, oh, there's no regulatory clarity. Uh, yeah, maybe one one could argue either way, and I've heard it argued both ways. And then the Gensler regime, which is regulation by enforcement, which is the whack-a-mole. Like it's really hard to figure out, and you have to go through like eighty different dissertation, like 100-page papers to figure out what is the regulatory landscape look like, reading between the tea leaves, hence all the lawyers are getting paid an arm and a leg to do that for all the startups, which for me makes me mad because you raise a bunch of money as a startup to go and build something and you spend $500 million on it on lawyers. That's that's terrible, right? That's terrible for innovation. Mm. But the U.S. Blockchain Coalition, we're, we're all around sharing, collaborating, coordinating. I'd say pre-2021, it was like Wyoming, Texas, a little bit of that, a little New York. It was very patchwork. We weren't really talking to yep. each other. May of 2021, I called Lee Bratcher out of Texas and I said, hey, do we realize we're making this into a partisan thing? Technology should not be partisan. It shouldn't even be bipartisan. It should mm. be nonpartisan. So we need to be really careful and we should trade notes. And then... Are we in competition with each other? And we thought, you know what? We really shouldn't be in competition with each other. <laughs> Why? Sh- what, what's going on here? And so about a month later, we had about 30 states on a call. And we're all sharing notes. Hey, you know, we're working on this legislation. Wow. Hey, I'm having trouble over here in Hawaii. And we started helping each other. And that's how the uh, blockchain coalition was formed. And what I look at when I look at across the U.S. is a uh, a collection of really good people. It doesn't matter if there's super diehard, Trump-loving, red state or, you know, representative or a super Biden-loving blue state, we actually have quite a lot that brings us together. And it's the idea that we want to keep innovation here in the United States. We want this to be a great place to build businesses and grow your families and invest and hire people. And really, at the end of the day, that is what should bring us all together. That should be our North Star as a country. Let's build a great place to live. Let's have great jobs for our family and friends so that we can all have a great life. Literally, that's it, right? And you may come at, from, from yeah. at it from a blue perspective or a red perspective or a purple perspective, but we're all in this together. And then the U.S. Blockchain Coalition, we just share resources, we coordinate policies, we sort of act like the NBA. You know, I don't dictate. I just share resources and help coordinate across the U.S. Okay. Okay. And looking at some of the things that you do when you're spreading the good word, Ari, in that there's a lot of folks that kind of need to come over to the other side. Do you find yourself talking more to the converted or talking to those that where you do need to open some minds a bit? I used to speak a lot to the critic or the skeptic or what you would call maybe the normie even. Yep. But these days it's talking to more of the enthusiasts and or the natives. And it really is around being one community. Hey, you know, Bitcoin, or let's not hate the NFT people. And NFT people, hey, let's not, you know, hate the crypto people. And hey, blockchain people, protocol people, let's not hate the crypto people. Like we're all on the same team, we're the same family. And so yeah. that's a big message that, you know, hasn't really been bought in yet. And so until we act like one team, it's gonna be really hard to get results as one team for the industry, right? There is no industry, we're pockets of silos right now. 
you, you must have seen some shards of light or slivers of light on how to unite people in blockchain and crypto. I think. Right. It, it, is, is there something that you think we can pull on I think on the here? devil's in the details. And so when I speak to most people, even the native and AKA the OGs, I think we've gotten so used to just talking in general, conceptual, mental space. We need to get more down to like the logical space and the physical layer of what we're actually talking about, like the devil's in the details again. So people are like, oh, the blockchain space, the Web3 space, blah, 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 you know, like very wide conceptual gesture. But what we should really be talking about is I say like blockchain is really powerful, not because of, you know, the Bitcoin or the crypto or like the protocol. It's all of these things together, right? Blockchain is powerful because there's a whole economic institution that's embedded into the protocols. We are like creating institutions, new institutions in protocols with zeros and ones at the end of the day. And so that's why this is scary, because this goes beyond jurisdictions and countries and cities and counties and even regions. This is like a whole new digital landscape that we are building in the digital space. And then and because of that, you have to embrace the idea of crypto and you have to embrace the protocols and you have to embrace the different use cases. And then there are uh, even more nuances, right? Like blockchain at the end of the day, I mean, in the ideal definition is a public permissionless, globally mutable, decentralized experience, right? And the only use case that we see today that is truly public, permissionless, global, decentralized, immutable is the Bitcoin use case. And so I say like, that's the devil's in the details. Everything else does not have all of these ideal features of blockchain, not not everything. I say 99% of things out there do not have global, immutable, public, permissionless, decentralized. Everything else is like offshoots mm -hmm. of that. So when we are able to, as an industry and as natives and as OGs, talk to it at that specificity, we'll be able to earn trust again and become one one space. And then there are like lots of different use cases. Yes, but they're using more like permissioned blockchains, aka distributed ledger technology. And I talk to technologists and I say, let's not make that a dirty word. Let's embrace it. TLT is cool. It's great. There's lots of great use cases. 99% of all the use cases that we're talking about, DLT. Great, right? And then most of the crypto out there, they're, they're, they don't have the properties of Bitcoin. They are not public, permissionless, immutable, global, decentralized. Great. Now let's be very careful of why we need this use case to create money out of thin air. Because that's what we're doing when we tokenize. You're creating money out of thin air. Do you really need to create money out of thin air? Or can that money out of thin air be covered in some of these other, like, experiences that are already out there, like stable coins or Bitcoin, or I don't know, do you really need your own crypto? And then, and then like the NFTs, okay, I think, you know, we're scratching the surface, but until like the rest of the infrastructure is out there, we're not really going to see the breakthrough use cases around these different ideas that exist today. I know. <laughs> and I'm, you know, as an investor, I just try to step back and look at these as, well, where am I going to invest? What do I want to invest in? I want to invest in fantastic founders, mm -hmm. right? And that right now there's little else for me to do and little other way for me to look mm -hmm. at this space and ripped away all of the, all the buzzwords around 
they're not even buzzwords. They're just words that are part of this industry. DeFi, crypto, NFTs, <laughs> uh, metaverse, uh, whatever you want to say. All of these are just referring to different pieces and different components of it. And let's just bring it back to decentralized. Let's bring it back to tokenized economies. I'm even looking at stuff that people would say, what the hell is that doing in, in Web3, Pete? I'm like, well, it's leading us towards decentralization, which is a much bigger concept than just what's going on right now in crypto, mm -hmm. right? But like you said, this is a bird's <laughs> nest. This is something that is going to take us quite a few years to sort out. And in the meantime, let's just invest in great founders. On the other side of this, Ari, are those that were trying to open their minds a bit. And Chris Dixon, and I feel like I'm quoting him way too much these days from A16Z Crypto. This was on a podcast he did with Tim Ferriss and Balaji Srinivasan, I think. Either Balaji or it was Naval Ravikant. And he said, my whole time in crypto, I've never met anyone who is both informed and skeptical. And so it's that journey to inform people. What is it that you commonly might say to shine some light on things for people who are normies, as you said, who have not yet come to the other side of the river and seen the light in blockchain. No, not everyone needs to it being, you know, one, one important thing like mm -hmm. my mom and dad, but at the same time, for, for those that you're finding that could create some friction for you because they're uninformed, what is it that you might say to them to open their minds a bit? Usually what I like to talk about is just the conceptual journey of where we've come from and like how it applies logically to why we need something like this, whether it be like this specifically or something like this, right? I talk about the analog world, you know, the 90s where we had filing cabinets, we used to like put letters to each other and envelopes and snail mail stuff to each other. And then you go like to the digital digitization phase that we just went through, right? Like the late 90s till even today, we take these analog processes and we digitize them like email. I can send you messages and we have all these filing cabinets everywhere, all over our desktops and these folders. Now also in the cloud, air quote, we have ways that we can communicate with each other and do all these sorts of like really cool, neat things digitally and also on mobile apps. But the infrastructure wasn't built for this, right? And that's why we have all these problems. Experian hack, Facebook hack, you know, email phishing, you know, scams, people getting pig butchered and attacked and DDoSed and blah, blah. <laughs> there are lots of problems because this digital infrastructure that we're using today wasn't natively designed to be digital. And that's why we need something that was natively designed to be digital, to be the underlying infrastructure for our digital world that we live in today. You know, mobile devices, cloud, computers, whatever that may look like. We need something that'll help me say, like when I send Pete Townsend an email, do you have the original or do I have the original? Right. And how do you know? Mm. How do you know? How do you yep. know that I sent it? How do you know it wasn't like somebody that hacked into my computer that sent you an email, right? Like there's all these issues that come in or like you go into a bank um, website. How do you know that this is the actual bank website? There's all of these experiences that we have digitally today that is, it's not working. And we know it over and over again. It's definitely not working. So that's why it's yeah. getting worse. It's get. It's definitely and it's getting scarier. worse. And scarier. And now it's like at a global scale. Like it's digital warfare, country to country right now. So like, how do we do this better? Well, we need to take 
five steps back and rebuild this infrastructure and then we can leap forward 10, 20 steps into the future. But it'll involve us all coming together, coordinating, deciding on the language, the definitions, the policies, the guidance, the interoperability between county cities, organizations, all of it. And then how do we as people want this experience to be? Now we have this opportunity to rebuild and rename the rules of the game digitally. We can get involved and recreate a better world for our generations and our children and our grandchildren. We should get involved and we're not getting involved on that front. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's like just my level of or the, the level of spamming and fishing that I get now has just gone through the roof. And I find myself getting an email, looking at it, saying, all right, let's look at the address. Let's look at the who's it from, if it's anything suspicious whatsoever, and then separately go off through another browser to a website and see if it's legit. And if it's not, obviously delete it and get rid of it and make sure it's gone forever because you don't know what's sitting there in on an email mm -hmm. server. So this is and this is happening so much more these days. And I don't think that, that that blockchain is a panacea to all. But if we move in the direction of a framework where this is, like you said, rebuilding the Internet is effectively what we're doing because and reminiscent of another person from A16Z who the, the A is Andreessen, we're listening to him say repeatedly, like you said, when this, we first went on this trip with the Internet, it wasn't built to move value around. It wasn't. And it's all been everything that we've seen over the last 25, 28 years on this journey has been a lot of bubblegum and <laughs> band-aids to piece it right. all together. Fintech, yeah. right? Like fintech was just a wonderful big reskinning of traditional yeah. finance using some of the bubblegum and band-aids <laughs> right. of the internet, right? right? But you no, know, we do have a long yeah. way to go. But I can see what it's going to look like, and I know that you can too. So. <gasps> And that's, that's where the suffering is, <laughs> right? It is, I know. And it's like, Jesus, we do. Oh, I don't even want to go down there. It, it's like you, you try to move so fast through everything, but no, it, it's crazy out there right now. Thinking about your investment approach, you, do you want to talk a little bit about what embodies all of that through Yellow Umbrella Ventures? <laughs> well, Yellow Umbrella Ventures is like our family investing entity. When we look at investments, we think about like, does this have a market? All the things that a typical startup investor should be thinking about. Do they have traction? Is this a business? Is it a good product? Do Can they actually build something? But we also look at, is this really going to change the world for the world that I see in the future? And then I also look at the founders. Do they have the persistence? Are they in this for ego, even though they say that they are not? What is their ultimate outcome? Someone showed up with $10 million, would they quit tomorrow? And if they wouldn't, maybe mm -hmm. I might believe in them. Do they have the diligence and persistence? Because one of the things I ask most founders is, can I see like your business model or like, how are you tracking everything that's going on every day? Like, I want to see that Excel and I want to see that giant, giant freaking mess of a spreadsheet. And if they don't have one of those, I go, no, this, this is not going to work out, but I'm happy to help you set that spreadsheet up so that you can start tracking and being diligent yeah. because that's the only way you're going to be able to figure out what's working and not working and among all the goddamn levers that are out there, right? And then especially in this air quote web three space, 
when I look at founders, I go, do they have all the ingredients or the capability to be the adult in the room, whether it's with their startup or a room full of lawyers, because they're going to have a room full of lawyers. Do, are they able to be the adult in the room and command attention and respect? And I'd say like 90% mm. of founders that I meet in this Web3 space, I say no. Like I, I don't believe that you are going to be able to command attention and respect from all the lawyers and the accountants and the government people and the letters from the three-letter agencies that are come your way eventually. Are you going to be able to command attention and respect? No. And then are you going to be able to command attention and respect from adults that you may hire? Like you want to be always hiring better than yourself, but are they going to respect you or are they going to walk all over you? And so if those ingredients are not there, I, I, I just, I can't buy because you're not going to be able to command the attention. Because I went through that from my own experience, right? I joined the startup and it was two 22, 23 year olds and they were getting walked upon and kind of just, they're getting billed by their lawyers and accountants and they're not doing their job. Like they're just getting crappy output in terms of employment documents and like corporation documents and just everything A through Z was a complete mess under the hood. And yes, maybe that's what a CEO should do. We are the janitors that go in to clean up, but... No, not, not that's not a startup you want to invest in. Yeah, that's interesting because I remember you talking about a few minutes back about while you were in those accelerator programs, <laughs> taking notes and just paying attention to what you thought a good company looked like. And there's a ongoing discussion that I'm having with Hugh McGurr, who's the investment principal on the Web3 program mm -hmm. with me, on where we look for guidance as investors. Mm -hmm. And I'm all about going a level mm -hmm. before, right? And saying, let's look at the angel investors mm -hmm. and see how they're doing things. How are they making decisions? What are their mental models? What are their mm -hmm. frameworks? And he suggested to me, look one step ahead, look to the seed and series A investors and how are they doing things? What are their mental models? And I hear you talking about an interesting point about the adult in the room in that when Anyone that we look to bring into Techstars to run a program, that is one of the big things we ask is, can they command mm -hmm. the room? Can they be mm -hmm. the adult in the room? Can they be the one that's leading the conversation? Because they absolutely have to and they need to command that respect. And that is a very interesting mental model to then apply back onto mm -hmm. the founders and say, could I imagine this founder leading a Techstars program? <laughs> right? That is a good way to think about it. Go one mm -hmm. level up. I'm always looking to perhaps go one level before to see if they have the foundational experience and expertise. I think it's probably a little mm -hmm. bit of both, but that's a very interesting take. And it's one that I'm going to add to our 37 <laughs> point due diligence questionnaire. When we do a deep dive onto a founder, can they command the room? Can they be the right. adult in the room? And also, you know, it may not be the CEO, but hopefully is the CEO. Do they have the business savvy to understand like terms and conditions? of employment agreements, of their corporation documents? Do they have the business side to know what's really going on or are they just blindly following whatever? Because you need someone in the room mm. to be kind of sharky shark and just making sure that, I mean, really, it's all about terms at the end of the day, right? It is. Can you send them off to an accelerator <laughs> program to learn that? <laughs> business savvy? I don't, I, yes, you can. But if the innate, integral, like intrinsic motivation to be that business savvy mm. is not there. You can't teach it no matter how hard and how amazing your program is. And so yeah. you just have to see that glimpses of they have the business capability, but yeah, can they be savvy? And they, can they be groomed to be savvy? 
I gotcha. That makes sense. Anything that you've seen from all the companies that you've looked at that makes you think, geez, I wish this problem would be solved in crypto or blockchain that you've seen come up time and time again and you wish that it, someone would solve it? So far, it's all around digital identity. I've seen lots of digital identity solutions and we've talked about the trust over IP frameworks and there's the Web3, what is it, the W3C and DIDs and I haven't really seen a good thing that brings everything together and solves this idea of digital identity across borders, across organizations, across cities. I think that's something that's really important. And then there's the idea of DAOs. I think like conceptually, it makes a lot of sense, but when you apply it practically, it's, it's still of a mess. And we need something that allows us to coordinate as people and as jurisdictions and as organizations and as regimes more eloquently and we just don't have a good way of doing that right now and so it's just that patchwork of random working groups and people getting together and are these the right people that are in these working groups in the first place and do they even know what they're doing i'd say like 90 percent of them know and so this is just a lot of burning hours and pomp and circumstance and resources being created that aren't really ready for showtime yeah i know I know. And I, I've you know seen tons of digital identity propositions. I've seen some people get quite close. I was got a new iPhone mm. a couple of weeks ago and I'm going back through and cleaning up some old apps. And I see one that I thought would have become something that I hadn't looked mm. at in a couple of years. And now it's dead. It's gone. Right. So you, I, I think Apple may get there first. Apple may get there first and it's not decentralized. And that's a big thing. Right. So but does the world do the 8 billion people in the world right now when they think about uh, identity and digital identity, is it critically important to them for it to be decentralized? It will be important in the long run, but as of right now, I'm not right. sure, right? But I would love to see that nailed as well. Anything that you've passed on where, you know, we talked about Bitcoin back in 2014, but I think a bunch of us passed on Bitcoin in 2014. Yeah. So, and got into it a couple of years later, but any investment of, of time or money <gasps> That, that you've passed on that you're kicking yourself you know, about? like for a while, I was obsessed with Charles Hoskinson. I would chase him all around the world and meet him in Athens and like Boston and, okay. you know, Cayman Islands. And all that time, I never bought a single thing of his, never bought his tokens. I never bought anything that he touched early, as early as I was following him. And so, you know, I kicked myself around that or... You know, I had folks in my group that were buying Ethereum at $10 and they were like taking out full on you know, credit card loans to buy Ethereum. And I was like, they're crazy. But like, I didn't even stop to buy like $100 of, you know, 10 Ethereum at $10. Like, I kind of kicked myself at that. In 500 startups, there's a company called Aircall. They've done swimmingly well. And my husband okay. and I were like, yeah, that's definitely one I want to put money in. I was the guy. I was like, yeah, I've been watching them every weekend. There's only two or three teams every weekend, Saturday, Sunday, that are in the accelerator working day in, day out. They're one of them. I would put money on them. Wow. And uh, also kicking ourselves for not having gone through that. Because in hindsight, I was like, yeah, we're spot on right there. Okay. <laughs> and and any that you were where you thought, well, listen, this one may not work out, but I really believe in the founders. Mm -hmm. And you, you took a bet that you thought would be, hey, this is founder focused. I believe in this founder. I'm just going to I'm, I'm just going to place a bet. We here. placed a big bet in 2021. So we don't really know if, 
it's going to work out or not yet. So like I can talk about that one, but uh, yeah, <laughs> other than like a very small amount, half a Bitcoin earlier, early on, not as early as we wanted. Like that's probably the only one I can talk to where like we've made a, we really believe in Bitcoin and then we really believe in Protigo Trust. So they were like one of the three OCC chartered federal crypto capable trust banks, institutional grade that was approved in the past couple of years. They're the only one that was ever approved out of Washington State. And there have been no trust or banks approved in the last like 10, 15 years in Washington State alone. We're, mm. we're pretty hard to get things through on the banking and fintech side. And so made a bet on Protico Trust. And I really believe like once everything is out there, we need something like a Protico Trust out there, institutional grade trust company, not a prime trust, as you know, as prime trust has done, not a Paxos yeah. Trust or Anchor's Trust. Yeah. Like we need something a hundred times better. And that is Protico Trust. Even if that one doesn't survive, like something like that needs to exist in the future. It absolutely does. I know. I know. And I'm looking for those crossover points <laughs> as well myself. And I, I've seen a few come up already in the last uh, couple of weeks that hopefully I can get those over the line as investments, but yeah. we'll see. Anything that you've, obviously, Ari, you've done so much so far. You've got a long way to go still. <laughs> we all yeah. have a long way to go still, yeah. right? You've done so much so far in terms of this twisty, windy career journey that you've been on. And I know that you've picked up tons along the way and that you've got a magnifying glass to everything to try to pick out all of the incredibly important nooks and crannies and details that are going to be key for you and lessons and that you're going to be able to drive into the next thing. But along that way, have you developed your own earned secret, something that you know to be true that others commonly believe to be false? I think the idea of constantly iterating and improving yourself and building your own personal heuristics, constantly refining those. And so it's around like, who do I want to invest in, in relationship wise, right? Who am I going to meet with weekly or monthly or even quarterly? That's circle of people is small. Who am I willing to share myself with? Who am I going to invest in? Who are people that are investable, whether it be a founder or even, you know, a protege or an employee? I have models that I've been tweaking for decades plus on those. And so, you know, I break those out every once in a while. And I think that really is, that's key, like putting your brain and heart together and just showing up over and over and speaking up. A lot of people are uh, afraid to, air quote, speak truth to power. But I think like that's also what makes me a lot of people will invite me to their boards or have me as their like secret squirrel in their back pocket. <laughs> Being able to separate personal heart with what needs to be said despite you know someone's feelings that might get hurt is an important skill and power to have a seat at the Absolutely. tables and in various places and I think that's yeah that's something that I've been working on forever I love it I love it, it when you put your mind and heart together that trust is a big thing and I heard a really interesting saying the other day that the world moves at the speed of trust <laughs> right and that if you can build trust with somebody that you can get things done yes. pretty quickly. And that's one of my big things mm -hmm. as well. Ari, listen, the last thing we ask everybody on this podcast is a question that goes something like this. What is one thing that people would not expect to know about you? I'd say my first language is music. Before I spoke, I understood the language of music because okay. you can read it, speak it, feel it. So 
sometime in the next 10 years, I would like to return back to my original language of music and do that day in, day out, be in a completely non-digital existence. Yeah. So okay. That's what, what <laughs> instrument? Piano. Piano. We just got our piano in the last oh, awesome. month because my eight-year-old started oh, really? playing it. And it is, the only thing is, it is not non-digital. It is an electric oh. piano. So it's the size, the width, and keyboard of a regular piano, but it is oh, digital. They make them so, better and better these days. Uh, they are, and it's pretty good. And just to get him mm-hmm. started, and all the kids are playing it, and they all started definitely reading music and playing the guitar. Mm-hmm. Two, my two older ones play the guitar and are definitely read music. I That was one skill that I never mastered. Mm-hmm. It was, can I put the numbers onto the saxophone and play the one, <laughs> two, three? But Music is one of those things that is a universal language that can bring people from all walks of life in, onto the same page and the same like air quote religious experience. Absolutely. And I get that as well from you, Ari, in terms of bringing people together. So it's music, but it's also the mind that can do that in the way that you treat people. So awesome. Well, listen, Ari, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Really appreciate it. This has been an awesome conversation and I'm looking forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much. That does it for this week, folks. Thanks to Ari Yu for opening up her mind to help us figure out why she does what she does. You can learn more about Ari and the U.S. Blockchain Coalition on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it helps others to find the show. Thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me... I'm an early-stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3. And I lead the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. There are plenty of links in the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie on how to get in touch, so don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, until next time, thanks for listening. See ya!